This episode is sponsored by Bombas, game-changing socks. Yes, Bombas decided to take socks seriously by designing the most highly engineered, best-fitting, comfortable socks humans have ever imagined, and they look cool too. Woven so that they don't fall down, warm in winter, cool in summer, no toe seams, arch support, and more. I'm wearing some right now. They have little bumblebees on them. And with every purchase, they donate a pair to a homeless shelter where socks are the most requested items. They even have a no questions asked return policy if you decide you want boring, uncomfortable socks instead. Go to bombas.com slash so smart for 20% off of your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash so smart. Bombas, be better. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 76. This is the eighth episode in a series of episodes, a season of episodes all about logical fallacies. Logical fallacies. If you haven't heard the earlier episodes, we covered what logical fallacies are and how they work. And then we talked about the fallacy fallacy, the no true Scotsman fallacy, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, the black and white fallacy, the straw man fallacy, begging the question, special pleading and moving the goalposts. By the way, if you're enjoying these shows and you would like to get them ad free, along with all the other You Are Not So Smart episodes, you can get them early and get extra content and unaired interviews and all the rest by going to Patreon dot com slash you are not so smart and becoming a patron for one dollar a month you get the show ad free our returning experts to help us understand these logical fallacies are i'm vanessa hill i'm the writer and host of braincraft which is a pbs digital studios series on psychology neuroscience and why you act the way you do so i'm julia galef i a few years ago i co-founded this nonprofit called the center for applied rationality have my own podcast called Rationally Speaking, um, in which I focused on applying concepts from psychology and philosophy and statistics to everyday life. I'm Bob Blaskowitz. I'm a assistant professor of critical thinking at Stockton University. Uh, I well, I, I teach students how to basically uh, read and think. And together, our experts are going to help us understand the genetic fallacy. So the genetic fallacy is kind of an umbrella fallacy. It includes ad hominem attacks when you're attacking the person who is presenting the argument or the institution presenting the argument. And sometimes it includes appeals to tradition and authority and novelty and nature when you're supporting the source of an argument. And sources are what this is all about. When you believe or disbelieve a statement, you sometimes try to go way, 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 way back all the way to the beginning to find out what influenced the very DNA of the thing being discussed so that you can avoid arguing the facts of the matter as they are presently presented. Whenever you hear someone beefing up an argument by talking about origins, 
the genetic fallacy might just be roaming around. People regularly suggest something should or should not be permitted because of how they were brought up or what the first principles in their country were or what the first politicians in their country intended or how things were done in the good old days or what ideas on which their company was founded or even where their opponents grew up or went to school or what clubs they used to belong to or where they obtained their accents. Every item of clothing, every word, every institution, group, nation, device, and food in the world has a history. And sometimes those histories are completely irrelevant. Then sometimes they are relevant. See, it's not always bad to consider the source of a piece of information. It's just tricky. And as we discussed in a previous episode, you might need to employ Bayesian reasoning to consider the probabilities of something being true or false. So how can you spot the genetic fallacy? How can you avoid committing it, fight against it, and know when it is okay to think about the source of a piece of information? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, right after this short message from one of our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Exo Protein. Now, we've all noticed the movement towards sustainable food for the future, and there's one protein source that's starting to dominate the conversation crickets. <laughs> yes, crickets. Now, before you balk, hear Exo out. They're exceptionally high in complete protein, packed full of micronutrients like iron, calcium, and omega 3s. And if you want to eat sustainably and responsibly, it's 20 times more resource efficient to raise crickets for protein than cows. And the best news, this startup called EXO, that's E-X-O, they have made crickets easy to eat by making protein bars with cricket flour. So you never, ever would know this was made from crickets if they didn't tell you. These bars are not only high in protein, but they're also low sugar, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and most importantly, absolutely delicious because... A three-star Michelin chef developed the recipes. EXO, again, that's EXO, wants everyone to try these bars. So if you go to exoprotein.com slash so smart, they will offer a sampler pack to you of their most popular flavors for less than $10 with free U.S. shipping. This is the food of the future, and this is your chance to try it before everyone else. Just go to exoprotein.com slash so smart. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I am David McCraney, and this episode we are discussing the genetic fallacy. I think genetic in this case just refers to where something has come from. So I think my definition of this is uh, the genetic fallacy is where you accept an idea based on where the information came from rather than the merit of the actual idea. It's an informal fallacy and it's when you judge something based on where it comes from instead of its own qualities in its current context. So I would say that that to the extent that this is a fallacy, um, it happens in cases where people are overstating the amount of evidence 
provided by the source of a claim. I think you come across examples of this all the time. Like at a really basic level, you could have, um, I, I would say kids. You can have things that kids believe like Santa or the Tooth Fairy and they could just say that they believe in the Tooth Fairy because their parents told them that it was real. I would say the genetic fallacy is just a broader form of ad hominem. Yeah, this is the umbrella term for the thing that that if the argument from authority and the ad hominem are... are our siblings or like ones that, you know, they're evil twins of each other or whatever, you know, this is the parent. So in ad hominem, you're saying a claim is false because it came from a bad source, like a stupid person. Right. Um, but you might also say, well, this claim is true because it came from a good source, like a smart person. But both of those would be examples of the genetic fallacy. They're both examples of supporting or or rejecting a claim based on its source. And I think even as adults, there's examples that we see of this. Uh, my dad loves to listen to this Australian shock jock called Alan Jones, who just has so many opinions and feel opinions <laughs> on everything. And he will tell me things as fact because Alan Jones told him that it was true. And he doesn't question the source or anything like that. And in, I mean, you know, I love my dad, but in the same way, it's just like, the tooth fairy argument, just uh, repeating something that Alan Jones has told him, like, you know, climate change doesn't exist because that's mm. something that this this shock jock believes. Um, and I think that lots of people will just trust sources far too much and will just reiterate things that they say or reject other things based on information that they're told without questioning the validity of it or where it's come from. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned someone like Alan Jones. I'm not familiar with that person, but this is, I like the idea that there's, I find weird, bizarre comfort in the idea that that, that person probably exists everywhere and every culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would, I would say so. And I mean, I don't think you need to listen to Alan Jones because there would be someone else in, in America who would, I guess, hold the same position. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, but, you know, like I, I see this happening and I, this is something um, I have to be careful of myself. Uh, and I think all of us do because I, a lot of times someone will, will just trying to be a good reasoner People might say, might tell you something like, uh, hey, did you hear that um, so-and-so politician actually uh, never went to school or something? And you're like, oh, well, where did you hear that from? Like that's usually, oftentimes that's the first question we ask. So yeah. it's, it seems, it can seem like um, it's not a totally bad thing to kind of think about. I mean, it is on its face, hardcore a fallacious way to create an argument, but it is, mm -hmm. it isn't necessarily a bad idea to consider the origins of something. What do you think? I don't think so at all. And I think actually that uh, people like us can fall victim, you would say, to the same fallacy. Like we might say, oh, this is true because we saw Neil deGrasse Tyson say it on Twitter and he's mm. an astrophysicist. Of course, he knows what he's talking about. But in some cases, he doesn't. And he's shown that in the past few weeks, I think, um, on uh -huh. Twitter specifically, except just because somebody is educated doesn't mean that they they don't fall victim to biases as well. So I, I, I think that we all need to question sources, no matter if they're like an astrophysicist or a shock jock. That's that's a great dichotomy. Uh, the, <laughs> those, those are two ends of a spectrum for sure. Yeah. Let's say that you are arguing about a particular I don't know, ear of corn and, and you're, you know, well, it comes from genetic modification, you know, the, the, the corn is not, 
good or bad because of where it comes from, right? It, it's 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 either good or it's bad, right? Um, it's either like poisonous, like a, a poisoned ear of corn, or it's not because you have this a, a association with uh, Monsanto in your head. It doesn't necessarily. Unless you can prove to me that everything that Monsanto does is evil, and there are people who believe it, right? Um, just because it came from uh, somewhere that you personally don't like doesn't necessarily mean that it is bad. A- another uh, case might be, well, that this is a bill that was put forward by the, say, the Republican Party, and you happen not to be a Republican. But there may be good ideas in there, right? Um the, the, the fact that it came from Republicans doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad and should be rejected outright. Uh, this also kind of can be done to support things like uh, like when people mm-hmm. invoke the founding fathers, which happens all the time, you know, like, the well, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, blah, 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 blah. Right. Well, and so, and, and, and our, it, it, you know, it, uh, the argument from authority is a, is a type of, I think it's a subtype of a genetic fallacy because mm. you are arguing on the basis of something irrelevant of an irrelevant origin so just cite the founders begin it's the founders therefore they're right you know mm-hmm. not really and an, and an ad hominem is, is is kind of the same thing too if you think about it you know i and i totally identify with this fallacy immediately because i'm from mississippi and so i deal with this um I am like a manifestation of this fallacy because I, wherever I go, wherever I speak, whatever I do, if it comes up that I'm from Mississippi, this immediately has to be something that has to be dealt with. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't just be, you can't just let it hang in the air. Like, oh, really? You're from Mississippi? That's cool. All right. So moving on. I know I have, we have to settle. Okay. Where, what do you think about this? Are you cool? Are we cool? It's, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it, 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 I'd like to think that if the, the Hatfields and McCoys had, had known about the genetic fallacy, that perhaps they would have gotten along swimmingly. I have to say I don't like the genetic fallacy very much. Um, because I think in many cases, it's not much of a fallacy. Like, in fact, the quality of the source of information or of a claim is often evidence about the truth of that claim. Like, I think claims from smart people are at least a little more likely to be true than claims from stupid people. So if you know the source, that should update your confidence in the claim. You know, I mean, there's a little bit of, I guess, Bayesian reasoning there. Let's say that Andrew Wakefield, for instance, who's the uh, guy who... uh, published a fraudulent paper that connected uh, uh, the MMR vaccine to uh, uh, autism. If he puts out a movie, for instance, um, that's about how he was uh, a victim, you know, based on his past history, you're (laughs) not, you know, in the wrong being a little bit skeptical, right? Right. Um, So... It's possible that he could do something that helped the world's children. I don't know how likely it is, but you know, it it it, it it's possible. But right, yeah, this is a great example of like, yes, on paper that's a fallacy, mm-hmm. but um, it's it's also not exactly a bad. You no, know, it's just because uh, Michael Jordan, 
you know, Michael Jordan doesn't necessarily know everything there is to know about socks. And uh, right. Andrew Wakefield might not be the person that I want. I don't. I may not want Andrew Wakefield to be my pediatrician. Yeah. So <laughs> the context matters, and you know, the source can be a red flag. So you know, you might get something right in the Daily Mail every so often. Um, mm-hmm. But if you know, if your student is citing the Daily Mail, you, you are just fine saying, you know, this might not be the the, the type of source that you think it is. It's only a fallacy if we're in the land of pure deductive logic, where you're not making probabilistic claims about something being, you know, evidence, like statistical evidence for something else. You're just saying that X proves Y, you know, definitively. And in that context, it is a fallacy, basically. Like, the fact that someone is smart uh, about physics, I think, is some evidence that they're going to have an educated view about nutrition. But it's certainly not conclusive. There's plenty of, of you know, physicists who have done views about nutrition. Um, so I would not base my entire belief just on that fact. But I think it's mm-hmm. fair to, to use that fact as some evidence in, in whether you find the argument persuasive. But I don't think you can use pure logic um, almost ever in the real world. I think you always have to rely on, uh, well, what's called Bayesian evidence. So the the definition of the strength of a piece of evidence in according to Bayes theorem is uh is that it you know it could be anything it doesn't have to be a, a you know statistical table from a published paper any event or piece of information or experience you can ask yourself you know would that thing be more likely to occur in a world in which the hypothesis is true than in a world in which the hypothesis is false and if it is a lot more likely to occur in a world in which the hypothesis is true than, than encountering that thing, that experience or event, is at least a little bit of evidence for that hypothesis being true. And I think that this principle often applies to the quality of the source that you got a claim from. That if the source is good, you know, it's more likely to encounter uh, you know, smart or qualified people believing this thing in a world in which the thing is true than in a world in which it's false. What, is there sort of a telltale sign of this? Something that, that like, you know, like a poker tell for when you can, you're like, ah, that right there is definitely a genetic fallacy. Is there anything like that you can think of? I think it's just a case of questioning your sources and probably all the time in, in conversations, I would say. And I think personally it's hard because obviously institutions like, for example, the New York Times or PBS hold more clout and they have really strict editorial procedures compared to, say, naturalnews.com. Um, so, so people wouldn't question them as much as they would question the latter. But I think then we need to think, should you really take something as fact because you read it in the New York times? Often people, people just over extrapolate. Um, they, they overstate that evidence. So, um, you know, I would look for cases in which people are overstating the importance, like, uh, let's say, oh, look, people with PhDs are more likely to support democratic policies that proves that um, the Democratic Party is better or something like that. Uh, and, you know, if you, were to com- if you were to claim that people with PhDs supporting democratic policies is strong evidence that democratic policies are better, I would raise an eyebrow. Um, and basically, I think you just have to keep going back to this question of how much evidence is provided 
by the source. So just keep asking yourself, you know, in a world in which this claim were true, um, how much likelier would it be uh, to see these people believing it or these people claiming it? How do we get better at avoiding committing this as a fallacy? Uh, boy, you've got to be, you got to, got to separate the dancer from the dance, man. You got to, you know, uh, uh, be committed to caring about the merit of ideas themselves. That's, that's the best defense, uh, against committing it. I think, um, not being worried, uh, or not getting hung up on things. And, and notice when you do have a, a strong aversion to the mention of something like, Donald Trump or Andrew Wakefield or whatever, uh, when you have that strong emotional reaction, uh, you should be aware that your judgment may be compromised. I think it's always good to have multiple different kinds of evidence. Um, there's, there's no logically airtight way to reason your way to a conclusion. Um, and, and, even your estimates about how much evidence does that thing provide for the claim, those are all going to be fuzzy and fallible. Um, and so you just want to build robustness into your models by having lots of different kinds of evidence. So that could be, uh, that could be the opinions of, of self-described experts. Um, it could be scientific studies. It could be uh, even you know, anecdotal data, depending on what the field is. Um, it could even be a priori reasoning, like how would I expect this process to work? Um, and so I think you can, you can minimize the extent to which you're overstating the, the uh, relevance of some expert opinion or some, um, some otherwise smart or charismatic person's opinion by just looking for different kinds of evidence for what they're claiming and seeing if you can corroborate it. I think this fallacy is an easier one to avoid because you just need to have some reasoning behind your argument. You just need to have some reason other than I saw it here, I read it here, this person told me this. Like you have to have some kind of example or evidence. So I think the genetic fallacy is going to come up a lot because this is obviously part of how people operate. What do we do when, when it matters, when we need to call, call people out on it? What, what is the best way to defend against it, to counter it? Oh, uh, stay doggedly on message. You know, yeah, that's fine, but that doesn't matter. Let's argue the point. You know, just stay doggedly on message. Um, it's easy to get distracted. Um, really easy to be distracted, um, but stay on message, stay on message, stay on message. In practice, honestly, I often just point at counterexamples. It's not the most rigorous way to argue, but you know, if someone is saying, "Well, hey, uh, uh, GMOs are bad because um, this scientist said so," and you know, he's a scientist and he's smart and he knows about science, right? So therefore, GMOs must be bad. Um, I would just grab an example of another scientist who believed a crazy thing. <laughs> like, well, look, <laughs> the scientist believed that, that uh, you know, politicians are all lizard people. So, like, that's not, <laughs> that, that in itself is not proof of, of the claim. You can't just, like, automatically uh, trust something because a scientist said, said it. But to be honest, I would expect in that case that they would probably move the goalposts um, <laughs> because uh, I doubt that, like, that particular scientist making the claim was 
the crux of their belief in the claim. It was probably uh-huh. just like the thing that they reached for to defend their position. Um, so I don't think that's going to end the argument right there. But yeah. at least it will move on to a different goalpost. I, I think we need to point out the need for more than one source to have a solid argument. Except this is kind of inherently problematic because the problem is that we're attracted to similar sources. So in the case of my dad, and I think these examples are going to be great for your Australian audience, but no one else will know what I'm talking about. If he says, look, I heard it on, ja- on Alan Jones, but then I also read it in the Daily Telegraph, which is like a tabloid newspaper, then he has essentially like corroborated his source and strengthened his argument, except that that idea is coming from the same place and the same belief system. So we tend to consume information that confirms our beliefs. Um, So if you're reading the New York Times, you're probably also listening to NPR and watching PBS NewsHour, and Mm. they're great sources of information, but they're probably more left on the spectrum, I would say. Uh, Maybe not PBS, but I would say maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, quite positive. I mean, it's not like you're, you know, watching Fox News and I don't even know newspapers anymore. What is another <laughs> newspaper? <laughs> Maybe, uh, I guess, uh, uh, the um, Wall Street Journal, the uh, National Review. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more conservative yeah. conservative side to everything as well. Um, yeah, the, this idea of, of a filter bubble is such a um, tricky minefield of thinking that you have to deal with as a modern human being because we have such control over the sources of our media. We don't have, you know, there's not just a newspaper in our town that we have to read and we can say, we can pick and choose. And that off, obviously we're going to pick and choose people who are a little less aggressive toward our ideologies. Definitely. And I think even your Facebook newsfeed is an example of a bubble because you tend to be friends with people who have the same beliefs as you. And then you see the information that they're sharing, which confirms those beliefs. And Mm. sometimes it becomes hard for you to imagine how Donald Trump could ever win an election because who would vote for him? But you don't realize that your experience of the world is with a very narrow subset of society. And that there are people whose entire newsfeed would just be about how Donald Trump is great. So <laughs> you don't realize that. And I think it's important to read lots of different sources to kind of be like source agnostic and to watch Fox News, yet yeah, read the New York Times and just consume information from different places. Mm-hmm. That's such good advice too. And, you know, and, and um, social media platforms like Facebook take that to a, another level where they will the algorithm will actually scrape the data from your feed. And if someone happens to post a news story that seems like something you would not normally read, it just won't show it to you. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you, Cause you don't get your raw, you don't get the raw feed from all of the people you follow. It's, it's, it, there's a filter between you and the information that's algorithmically determined to be more like something that you're more likely to actually click on. And so they take it even further than you naturally would take. So the Facebook algorithm just feeds into our confirmation bias. 100%. Because (laughs) that that helps them get clicks and advertising dollars. Yeah, but then it just becomes difficult to counter someone's argument if someone is source blind and they just take rubbish sources as fact. Yeah, and I think that it's important, you know, I think we we toss phrases like that around pretty pretty, pretty quickly if you've lived in this community for a while. But it's important, I think, to note that that is not 
necessarily easy and it's yeah. something that you have to learn. It's a, just like language is a tool that you have, is a thinking tool you have to learn. Math is a thinking tool you have to learn. This kind of thinking is a thinking tool that must be it's learned. It's a learned we skill. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And can be hard one and can also be very uncomfortable at times. Yeah. We had to figure it out. It had to be invented and it has to be passed on to people through as a learned skill. And that's something that I think, I think uh, you'll at some point. So some people will kind of look upon the people who've not learned the skill and just think of them as being stupid or lazy or dumb or, or uh, inelegant in some way, in some way that you are not anymore. And uh, it can seem as if that was the way you were all the time. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of forget that you had to learn this yourself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Empathy is is important and try to remember what it was like before you started having some of these revelations yourself. Bob Blaskowitz is an assistant professor of critical thinking at Stockton University and very active in the skeptic community. You can find him in places like virtualskeptics.com, skepticalhumanities.com, and the Skepticality Podcast. Vanessa Hill is a science educator and writer and stop-motion animator who hosts BrainCraft, which you can find on YouTube as part of the PBS Digital Studios family, where she teaches psychology and neuroscience through crafty, interesting videos, her website is nessiehill.com. Julia Galef is the president and co-founder of the Center for Applied Rationality, and she hosts the Rationally Speaking podcast in addition to making YouTube videos, lecturing, and writing for a number of publications you've probably heard of. You can find her at juliagalef.com. I'll have links to all their stuff at youarenotsosmart.com and in the show notes. And up next... You're going to hear a short commercial, a short ad from a sponsor, and then a cookie, and then the credits. I am a big fan of The Great Courses, and that's why I'm excited to tell you about their new video learning service, The Great Courses Plus. You can learn about anything and everything with unlimited access to The Great Courses lectures on hundreds of topics taught by top professors. With The Great Courses Plus, browse the entire catalog, create playlists, and watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. And now... They are offering my listeners a special chance to watch their popular course, How to Play Chess, and hundreds of other choices absolutely free. How to Play Chess is a series of video lessons taught by an international master, the renowned chess teacher, Jeremy Silman. Chess is considered more than just a game, as you know. It's a science and art. It's based on skill, tactics, and intellect. And this course provides a deeper understanding of the game, 
with tools to become a better thinker outside the game, helping you be more confident when thinking strategically in any situation. And now The Great Courses Plus is offering my listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their other courses, including How to Play Chess, a $235 value for free. When you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader of the books. And this recipe is, oh boy, oh boy, this is one of my favorites. This comes from Jonathan Schnapp. Jonathan Schnapp sent this, oh my God, four years ago. <laughs> we went all the way back to some of the very first cookies and uh, he's getting a book because if you send us a recipe and we cook it, if we bake it, if Mandy makes these cookies and then I eat them on the show, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book or the sequel, You Are Now Less Dumb. And John Schnapp is getting one for this recipe, Mexican Hot Chocolate Snickerdoodles. Oh, <laughs> these are spiced hot chocolate cookies. You've got sugar, maple syrup, almond extract, vanilla extract, chocolate extract, cocoa powder, baking soda, salt, cinnamon, and cayenne pepper. We have real cinnamon in these. We had to, you know, have that shipped here. Real cinnamon and cayenne pepper. Oh, I'm getting ready. Uh, so they're not hard to make. They're just a traditional cookie, but they are crazy because they have a, have cayenne pepper as a kick. He writes in the email, uh, just listened to the first podcast and loved it. <laughs> and he probably this is probably sent directly after the very first podcast. Here's a fantastic cookie recipe for your consideration. It's vegan, but it's really rich with surprise heat to it. And uh, yeah, no eggs in this. So get ready. Here we go, John Schnapp. It's been a long time coming. I'm going to try the, let's look at this name again, Mexican hot chocolate snickerdoodle. All right, here we go. Oh, man. There's the, there's the kick. Oh, mm, I have to have a little milk, um, some almond milk. Here we go. Hmm. Yeah, so that, oh, this is what's great about this cookie. First of all, this is the best vegan cookie I've ever had. I know that a lot of these cookies are great that we've had over the years, but for me, this is like exactly the kind of thing that I like. So I think if you have some of my taste sensibilities, this cookie will shoot up into your top five because it is so great. And vegan, it is, you'd never know it's vegan. Uh, not that, <laughs> not that vegan food is gross, but you know, a vegan cookie from a regular cookie, but this one, you would not be able to tell. Ooh, <clears throat> the spice, spiciness stays with you a little bit. Oh boy. So this is a beautiful cookie. It's, um, it looks like, uh, like snow on volcanic ash. It's got a it's very, it's the blackest, darkest blackestness and uh, with a sprinkling of sugar on top. And so that looks beautiful. It's got the white and black. It's very cool. 
the outside is very crunchy and crisp, and the inside is as moist and soft as a brownie. And you bite into it, and it's super chocolatey, like the darkest, darkest chocolate uh, hot cocoa you've ever had in your life. And then, who who did this? Who put cayenne pepper in my hot cocoa? Because about six seconds into the chewing, you notice a blast of spicy, and it really works. It makes the whole experience fantastic because... Not only does the chocolate cookie browniness make you want something to drink with it, but boy, does that spiciness also make you want something. So you want to drink something with it times two. Mm. So I love any kind of food that asks me, uh, yes, I believe that it asks me to uh, have a little beverage along with it, whether it's milk or wine or whatever. If it's something that goes great with a little sip of something, mm, my favorite. And this is like the ultimate version of that. Jonathan, oh, so good. I feel like this was offered to me in some sort of Mayan, uh, Incan, Aztec ceremony. And they said, you know, eat this and you'll become as the gods. Oh, mm, so good. Thank you so much. John Schnapp, thank you. It was worth the four-year wait. Oh boy, we'll have the recipe for this at the website in the show notes for this episode. Mexican hot chocolate snickerdoodles. Ah, John, what can I say? A cookie Mm, for the gods. A book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboingpodcast.com for more great podcasts just like this one and go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart become a patron of the show get it with no ads early and extra content and uh you can help do things like the music in this episode all paid for by patrons that's what happens when you become a patron of a show like this you support it you keep it going and we really appreciate it go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart show notes at you are not so smart.com And check out our sponsor, Bombas. Bombas. They make these socks that will blow your mind. I'm wearing them right now. I've worn them all day. I'm making this podcast in my socks. Go to bombas.com slash so smart for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash so smart. Also, check us out on Facebook. Facebook's got uh, 340,000 fans, something like that now. And I'm always posting stuff there for you to check out videos and uh, other kinds of content that we make related to the show. So facebook.com slash you are not so smart. Also Twitter at not smart blog. I'm at David McRaney. And uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. More logical fallacy soon. <laughs>